Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and how are you doing? Okay where you are? I hesitate to say this, but is there some light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, I know it's a tiny pinprick of light at the end of a very long tunnel, but maybe, just maybe? I know we're just at the start of it, really, and I'm sure I won't be in the star and garter this side of Christmas. But it looks like other countries are starting to come out the other side now. Italy and Spain are starting to step outdoors a bit, and Germany seems to be coping very well. I'm talking in Germany. Excruciating segue alert. Excruciating segue alert. I'm so sorry about that. But welcome to this German-themed episode of Soho Bites. Why a German episode, you may well ask. Well, there are more connections than you might think. Probably the most famous German person in history lived on Dean Street for a few years. That's Karl Marx, of course. And in the first half of the show, I'll be talking to the great Tony Shrimplin from the Museum of Soho, about Marx's time here. And after that, we have our film chat. And yes, it's a German film set in Soho. I'll be joined by Daniel Riverscheid from the Talking Pictures TV podcast to talk about a very odd film, Das Phantom von Soho. Guess what that means? From 1964. And I should warn you that the interview was recorded before lockdown in a pub. So if you think you can cope with that painful stab of nostalgia, stay tuned to the second half of the programme to hear that conversation. On the corner of Broadwick Street and Carnaby Street at the western end of Soho, you've probably noticed the spirit of Soho Mural. It's been there since 1991 and depicts about 50 or so notable historical figures who are connected to the area in some way. Very prominent, front and centre, is a group of four people comprising Mozart, Teresa Cornelis, her ex-boyfriend, some guy called Casanova, and our very famous German Karl Marx. 
Marx and his wife, Jenny, lived in Soho for just under six years in the 1850s. For most of that time, they and their children were crammed into a couple of upstairs rooms at 28 Dean Street. This is now the site of the swanky Quo Vardis restaurant, and there's a blue plaque on the wall to commemorate their famous former tenant. By this stage in his life, Marx had been a political agitator for several years and was in exile from his home country, having also lived in France and Belgium. He'd already written the Communist Manifesto, and it was during his time in Soho that he wrote the bulk of his seminal work, Das Kapital. It wasn't a happy time for him or his family, though, as they lived in severe poverty for most of this period and suffered from ill health and personal tragedy. Tony Shrimplin from the Museum of Soho is the man to talk to about all things to do with Soho's rich history. Being the responsible, socially distant fellows that we are, I spoke to him on Skype, hence the occasional glitches in audio quality, about the only Soho resident to have had an ism named after him. Marx came into Soho in 1851. In fact, we, you know, we're going to talk about 28 Dean Street, but he actually lived in Dean Street just before that uh, at number 64, which would be where um, just between um, Bouchier Street on Dean Street, there's a restaurant there. And just before uh, Goldcrest, that's where the site of that building would have been. But around January 1851, he moves to 28 Dean Street, which is, as you know, the Quo Vadis restaurant. He rents two rooms initially and later on a third one, um, which he uses as a study. The ratepayer is an Italian-born cook called uh, John Marengo. And there's also an Italian confectioner and a teacher of languages living there as well at the same time. Different flats within the same building, kind of thing, or, or, they, or they all live together? No, no, in, in the same building. Right. And, well, there's some really sort of horrible descriptions of the place. Um, he lived in squalor, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, his wife, Jenny, describes it as the evil, frightful rooms which encompassed all our joy and all our pain. And, I mean, Marx had seven children in total, and... I think only two survived to, to adulthood, in fact, and he he lost two children actually at his time in Soho while he was there. He's also around during the um, cholera outbreak of 1854. Oh, is that the John Snow one? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I can remember listening to the BBC historian, I think it's Lucy Worsley, saying that Fox is writing back home. To to Germany, and she's she's also she's complaining about you know the rooms and saying that we, we pay as much here in one week for a couple of rooms. Um, back home in Germany, we could get um, a whole townhouse for a month. So the <laughs> rent seems sort of pretty pretty high. So nothing changes then in Soho. I, no, I assumed no. he was there because it was cheap. There's a Prussian agent who comes to visit, and he gives a very sort of descriptive um, account of the rooms. In one of the worst, therefore, so the cheapest quarters of London, he occupies two rooms. In the whole apartment, there is not one clean and furniture to be found. All is broken, tattered and torn. Everywhere clings thick dust. Everywhere is the greatest disorder. His manuscripts, books and newspapers lie beside the children's toys. Bits and pieces from his wife's work basket, teacups with broken rims, dirty spoons, knives, forks, lamps and inkwell tumblers, Dutch clay pipes, tobacco ash, all this on the same table. 
sitting down is a really hazardous business. But all this gives Marks and his wife not the slightest embarrassment. One is received in the friendliest way. <laughs> so it's, it's hardly surprising a couple of his kids pop the clogs on, is it? Do you know how they died? No, I don't. Just that, that, that they were still sort of very young. And, of course, the infant mortality rate's really high in the 19th century. Yeah. I mean, now there's probably around two and a half, three thousand residents. Back in the sort of 1890s, anyway, the 19th century, you've got 30,000 people wow. sort of squashed in, into this area. Also, about I don't think they were that great with money. And even though I think Jenny Marks comes from a quite middle class family, um, you know, fairly well to do. There are accounts that she was often at the pawn shop pawning the, the family cutlery. And there is one account of actually Karl Marx being arrested in 1854, trying to pawn the cutlery. But I think because he looked so disheveled, they thought he'd stolen it. <laughs> right. And I mean, there's other connections with Marx in Soho, of course, because he joins a um, the Socialist German Workers Educational Society. And they actually hold meetings in the Red Lion pub which is on the corner of Archer Street and Great Windmill Street. I think it's now a, a B at One cocktail bar. B at One, bar. that's right, yeah. So an upstairs room in that pub, was it? Yeah, and they give talks there. But he falls out with them and he, he resigns in, in 1850. It seemed that he spent a lot of his time, even before he moved to England, forming alliances with people along the same kind of ideological lines and then falling out with them again and... Yeah, and moving yeah, from place and to place because it was about London was about the fourth or fifth city he lived in, wasn't it? He's a political agitator and he's not really that welcomed in Europe. He gets chucked out of Germany, out of uh, Paris, and in and in eighteen forty eight, there's um, this sort of revolutionary wave going through Europe. It's called the Springtime of the People or the the Spring of Nations. So there's a lot of political unrest going on. And he's also going to the British Museum's library and studying there. In fact, he, while he's in Soho, he completes the first volume of Das Kapital. Probably all the squalor and everything informed him, you know, all his time here must have yeah. had a great effect. He wasn't a particularly healthy man. He had, I think, a liver condition, quite irritable. And he didn't help things by, he liked quite a lot of rich food and drink as well. Yeah, and smoking and stuff. It wasn't didn't he have boils in all sorts of unmentionable places and, and mm. he couldn't sit down properly and that kind of thing. <laughs> he was a proper beery drinking lad, wasn't he? He wasn't the sort of um constantly thinking about the plight of the working man and everything, but actually he was off he was a bit of a boozer and a bit of a carouser and that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's a number of uh, illegitimate children as well in the mix too, I think. Yes. I've read about that. Who was that with? There's, there's a housekeeper or something? or Yeah. So also at the flat, there's also um, a housekeeper living there and an English nurse as well. Quite a full house. So he had a housekeeper. He lived in poverty but had a housekeeper. Yeah. I mean, things don't... I'm getting, like, conflicting information. Um, as I say, very high rents, but they're living absolutely in in squalor. So for these five or six years he was in Soho, how was he earning his living? Because what writing Das Kapital in the British Library, or British Museum, isn't going to earn you anything, is it? So and Mark, Marx is earning a living also writing for certain um, publications, including the People's Paper and the New York Tribune. Um, and he's writing about the intrigues of revolutionary politics. And of course, he's, as we were saying, he's going to the British Museum and uh, there's a piece, what's it called? It's, I, to give my German, it's the Critique de Politician Okinomark. Yeah, that's not my. That's good enough. I'll get a German accent. person to voice that over. <laughs> yeah, thank you. 
So writing articles and things was he? And um, yeah, and that's of adding a few pounds um, ago. A few pounds. Also, I mean, once Jenny Marks inherits money from her family, and as soon as she gets that money, they're out, and they, as I said, moved moved to Kentish Town. It wasn't a particularly good period of their lives, really. I don't think living in Soho. Not at all. And how did they actually end up in London? Or was it was London a a particular hotbed of revolutionary activity or something? Is that what attracted him here? Or No, I, I think it was probably the only place they accepted him at the time. As I say, he'd been expelled from Germany and from uh, from Paris. He first came to London in 1845. He comes back two years later, just before the publication of the Communist Manifesto, which was 1848. Yeah, he's, he, he's, he's been expelled from his homeland and he settles permanently in London in 1849 with, with his family. And that was the rest of his life, wasn't it? He stayed, he lived and, and died yeah. there as well. And in, and in fact, at the Highgate, all, all the family are, are in that memorial, uh, that to you know, the tomb, the Karl Marx Memorial. Yeah. They're all there. Also, the plaque that's up there now at Quo Vadis, that wasn't put up till 1967, I believe. And previous to that, they'd actually wanted to put the plaque at the house where he died because he, he moved to 41 Maitland Park Road, Kentish Town. And that he moved there in 1875, and as you say, he died there. They wanted to put a plaque there. They tried it twice, but it was vandalised both times. And on the third time, the person who had that house said, oh, I've had enough, you know. And that's when they focused on the 28th Dean Street. I read um, a quote from the person who ran Quo Vardis at the time, who he, he also wasn't keen on having a, a Marx plaque on the restaurant. And he said, I've written this down, he says, my clientele is the very best, rich people, nobility and royalty, and Marx was the person who wanted to get rid of them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the irony's not lost. Yeah, I can imagine he, he wouldn't have been uh, all that welcome down at Quo Vardis, <laughs> even if it had been uh, around at the time. But he would have been welcome at Black's. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And lots of places in Soho as well he would have um, been welcome yeah. now. Yeah, you would. Karl Marx died in 1883, so I didn't live to see some of the radical events that took place in his name. Although I'm not sure he would have approved of how his ideas were interpreted and implemented in the Soviet Union, North Korea and China. He may have felt more at home just around the corner, though, in Rose Street between Greek Street and Charing Cross Road. It's now called Manette Street, but number six, just behind the Pillars of Hercules, was the location of the Rose Street Club, a centre for radical left-wing and anarchist thought which was formed by German immigrants not long after Marx had moved to leafy Kentish town. Look out for a feature about the Rose Street Club in a future episode of Soho Bites. My thanks to Tony for coming on the show, and you can find details about his work at the Museum of Soho at the end of the programme or in the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, 
or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. A killer is at large in Soho. Choosing victims seemingly at random, this masked phantom stalks the streets, hiding in shadows, waiting to attack unsuspecting men as they leave or enter the Zanzibar nightclub. The murders are shot from the point of view of the killer, and the last thing the terrified victims see is a flash of steel and a pair of silver gloves. Scotland Yard, in the shape of Chief Inspector Hugh Patton, is called in, and he takes over the case from the very proper and very English Inspector Hallam, who is diligent but has so far made no progress. You can tell Inspector Hallam is English because he is an eccentric and, like all English people, he wears a bowler hat. The plot plays out along well-worn lines as we discover that the victims are not chosen at random, but rather they're all connected to an incident that took place some years ago. An incident that has left at least one person seeking revenge. But who is it? Find out who this is and we have found our phantom. The first thing anybody who's ever been to Soho would notice about Das Phantom von Soho, apart from the fact that everybody is speaking in German, is that not a single frame of it was shot anywhere near Soho. Although the production designers have dressed the street scenes with nightclub signs and striptease adverts in English, it still just looks a bit like a down-at-heel Bavarian skiing resort. Das Phantom von Soho is one of several German films from the 60s and 70s set in an imaginary Soho. There's also The Hunchback of Soho from 1966, The Gorilla of Soho from 1968, and, please excuse my pathetic pronunciation, De Todesraka von Soho, which translates as The Death Avenger of Soho from 1972. These German Soho films constitute a sub-genre that sits within a larger category of film, which was hugely popular in Germany at the time, called Krimi, which is short for criminal. You could argue that the Krimi films are a sort of German noir, and like classic noir, there isn't an absolutely definitive list of criteria that qualify it, but a Krimi film will often have some, if not all, of these characteristics. It's a crime film set in the UK, usually England, usually London. They're mostly written by, or based on stories by, the prolific English writer Edgar Wallace, although in the case of The Phantom, it's part of a cheaper franchise and is based on a work by Edgar Wallace's bargain basement son, Brian Edgar Wallace. Many of them are in black and white, but have an opening title sequence in colour. The music is very... crimmy. A particular style exemplified by composer Martin Botcher, a sort of 60s sleazy jazz. I've posted a link on the show notes to a playlist of crimmy music and another one to a list of crimmy films. To talk about Das Phantom von Soho, I met up with a real live German person, albeit one who moved to Portugal when he was very young, Daniel Reiferscheid from the Talking Pictures TV podcast. 
This was pre-lockdown, remember, so we were able to meet in a public place surrounded by people. But the only place I could find in Soho with a German connection was Hermann's the German on Old Compton Street. And although, like many people on that street, I do like a sausage, it didn't seem appropriate. I therefore met up with Daniel at a pub just off the Strand, named after the master of creamy films. Where else could we meet but the Edgar Wallace? Thank you for coming on the programme, Daniel. So, you hadn't seen the film before I sent it to you, Das Phantom von Soho. Has your life improved now as a result of having seen the film? Uh, well, I guess, like, information is always something that improves your life, uh, and... Movies that aren't particularly good are often the most interesting from like a sociological perspective, but if you're asking whether I enjoyed the movie, not really. You've been diligent since we, uh, since we spoke and since I sent it to you. Um, and you've done quite a lot of research because when I first sent it to you, you your first reaction was, oh, it's one of the Edgar Wallace films. Yeah. Um, and although you left Germany when you were quite small, you were aware of Edgar Wallace being... Uh, quite a major figure in German culture, even though he's a British writer who died in 1932. And then you did a bit more research and told me that the f this was a kind of offshoot from from the main Edgar Wallace film. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so it's like very complex. Edgar Wallace in general, I don't know why he is that famous in Germany, but what I do know is that like in about 1959, uh, there was this guy called Gerhard F. Hummel at Rialto Films. Uh, who decided to make a movie based on an Edgar Wallace story. This wasn't the first time that Edgar Wallace got adapted to the screen uh, in Germany. There were things going back as far back as the 20s. But uh, at the time, people were like, oh no, crime movies are not uh, at all uh, uh, profitable. They don't work. But this was a runway success. And so like Edgar Wallace became this sort of brand in Germany. Uh, which I was still aware of, like even growing up there, like I left when I was four, but like I would come back for like family holidays and stuff. Even like in the 90s, Edgar Wallace movies were still something that everyone knew about. And in fact, I have childhood memories of like seeing the covers and they would have a lot of skulls and stuff. And at the time, they seemed like the scariest thing ever, like absolutely terrifying. But, but this is not an Edgar Wallace movie as such, is it? No, 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 because as I said, so this uh, company Rialto, they did 38 movies based on Edgar Wallace uh, stories from 1959 to 1972, uh, always set in the UK. Uh, Christopher Lee was actually in some of them. And as the time progressed, the adaptations got further and further away from the actual source material of Edgar Wallace stories because they wanted to keep up with the time, so they made them sexier, kinkier, more violent, etc. But then what happened was there was this enterprising businessman called Arthur Brauner who thought, well, I want in on this. I want in on this Edgar Wallace craze. And he got the rights uh, to the works of Brian Edgar Wallace, <laughs> Edgar Wallace's son. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, uh, those were then technically based on the works of Ryan Edgar Wallace but from my research what I can tell is like a lot of them are based on books that were never published and most probably never written so it's just about the brand so Brian Edgar Wallace just put his name on the front of it like because yeah. at the beginning of the Phantom 
a shadowy figure appears, and, he, and, and, and somebody with a German accent, so clearly not Brian Edgar Wallace, yeah. goes, Brian Edgar Wallace, and then appears, disappears off into the distance again. Yeah, so. that's, that's like a direct rip-off of the uh, more prestigious, and, and I'm using the term loosely because these were also kind of grindhouse movies, but the, the more popular Edgar Wallace movies would always start with a murder, and then you would have the opening titles, which uh, at the beginning those movies were, were in black and white, as does Phantom is. Uh, but the opening titles are always in color and there would be a voice going Edgar Wallace so th these here from the Brian Edgar Wallace series that was another way of ripping that off and trying to pass yourself off as a legitimate Edgar Wallace movie so this film yeah could you just set us up where are we we're in we're in Soho yeah we know that from the title what's what's going on so there's a police investigation going on because somebody got killed uh, in a seedy part of Soho uh, by this mysterious murder who is known as the Phantom. He operates with knives and leaves money, uh, on, left money on the corpse. And as the movie progresses, more and more people get killed by this Phantom. And it starts, there starts to be a pattern as to all of these people being involved in the same incident that happened at some time in the past. That seems to be quite a standard technique in this sort of genre where the victims seem to be uh, random, uh -huh. but they turn out they all have some connection somehow to some incident in the past, and this is the case in this film. Yeah, and I, I think it is quite a by-the-numbers whodunit, but I don't think they're particularly skillful in making you intrigued as to what actually happened, I think is the problem. Did you, uh, without any spoilers, do, yeah. you, do you even remember who the Phantom was? Did you? Oh yeah, I okay. remember who the Phantom is, and it's 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 somewhat uh, it is memorable. Uh, but I will say that I did figure it out earlier. Did you? Because I did not figure it out. I Maybe think, I wasn't. I wasn't. I think I don't think I was engaged enough mm. to actually bother to think about it. I thought it was possibly uh, there is. Um, well, there are some shady characters. There's yeah, a lot of them. There's a there's a Captain Muggins, yeah, who who was the captain of of a ship that they're all involved in. Exactly, yeah. Um, there's a doctor who seems very very shady, and also the um, the the head of Scotland Yard seems to be involved somehow in the yes. in the plot. But it, none of it seemed to for me. It, the, the strings didn't come together, or no. maybe they did, but I just wasn't interested enough to... I, I, I don't think they did, really, and when I say that I guessed it early on, well, not early on, but like within the last half hour of the movie, I would say, it wasn't through uh, deductive of like, oh, okay, it has to be this person. It was more of like, what will the filmmakers think is the most shocking ending? And, yeah, I don't know if that's already a spoiler, but... I just want to talk a little bit about the... Um the depiction of Soho in the yeah. film. Because it's like no Soho I've ever been to. Yeah, these movies were made entirely in Germany. There is no location work that I know of. Uh, even the, the airport, because at one point they go to an airport and I was like, oh, this could maybe be Heathrow in the 60s. I checked and no, it's the Berlin airport. Oh, I thought that was a set actually, when I, in the airport. No, 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 it is location work. Uh, what tipped me off was that for a... Um, Though I guess they would still have had to pay the people, but uh, for a movie this low budget, the fact that there was actually 
quite a lot of ethnic diversity and like national diversity in the airport scene made me think mm, they probably didn't like go to the bother of hiring extras. They're just travelers who have come from a yeah, foreign climate. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, my impression of the Soho depicted is it's, it look, I mean, it looks like Germany mm. or, it looks, or it, looks, it looks like a kind of a European city. And I'm, it reminded me actually of a skiing village. The, the, the buildings are quite quaint, um, and it's quite and it's very quiet. You know, it's misty. And in 1964, was when the film was yeah. made, Soho was a busy place then. It's maybe not as busy as it is now. Yeah. But it's, it just seems to be, it almost seems to be like a Victorian version, but with 60s go-go girls. And I think that's probably to do with like the influence of Edgar Wallace himself, and that these movies try to be contemporary, but at the same time try to sort of transmit the vibe of Edgar Wallace stories. So for instance, like the bum that they find at one point really feels like a Dickensian urchin more than anything else. Yeah, he, I mean, he was an Edwardian character. He's Edwardian, wasn't he? Edwardian, yeah, I think right? he's he Edwardian, sort of, yeah. yeah. The, there's a character called Inspector Hallam, yeah. who played by Peter Vogel, and he, uh, he's supposed to be, I think, a kind of like comedy English person, he wears a bowler hat, yeah. he has a bow tie, he is, is quite sort of correct and proper. And, and at the same time extremely lecherous though. Oh, yeah, very lecherous, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he, he lusts over all the girls in the bar, doesn't he? He knows all yeah, the yeah, comings yeah. and goings and stuff. But he, uh, there's one scene where a woman walks into the room they're in and he clicks his heels and does a little bow in a kind of a, yeah. it's, the most, it's the most cliche German thing you could think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that like uh, a big part of the fascination of these Edgar Wallace films was with like the German view of British culture, which at that time, you know, like, okay, 64, the Beatles were already around, but the big Carnaby 60s swinging London explosion hadn't quite happened yet. Uh, so it was perhaps a bit out of date, the, the picture that they had of English culture in general. Uh, and again, I would say, like, based on probably the short stories and the novels. I know that Sherlock Holmes was also always super popular in Germany, so that would probably account for the sort of view that they had. But I do think that it's mixed, because at the same time, you know, you have these strip clubs uh, and, and sort of like this whole prostitution angle, which feels a bit more 60s, I would say. But also, German cities, famously Hamburg, because the Beatles yeah. weren't there, that was rife with prostitution and you know strip clubs and pawn shops and that kind of thing. It wasn't as though they were looking at Soho and saying, "Ooh, look at that exotic thing," because it was it was at home, you know. No, no, no. I don't think that it was. I don't think they necessarily associated uh, Britain with that. They just associated it with, as you said, bowler hats and you know portraits of the Queen and and, and quaint stuff like that. Uh, the sexy stuff, I think, comes in because these movies are at heart. I would sort of classify them as exploitation movies before you could make real exploitation movies. So they're all about sex and violence, but neither the sex nor the violence are particularly explicit or satisfying is the thing, because they couldn't be yet. Yeah, and actually, the subsequent Von Soho films uh -huh. that come up in the series, I don't, well, they're not actually in the series, aren't they? There's the, the next one is The Gorilla of Soho. Yeah, but uh, all of the other Soho movies are from the uh, more reputable Edgar Wallace series. Although they're more exploitation films, aren't they, than from, I guess so. from I the mean, look of them, anyway? I think that, like, in the 60s, you know, every year brought new breakings of taboos. So as the Edgar Wallace series went on, it was allowed to become more explicit, 
more bloody. Uh, the Brian Edgar Wallace movies actually ended up having two movies by Dario Argento in them, who is, you know, like one of the greats of Italian horror. And those are definitely more explicit than what you can see in Das Phantom von Soho. I think it was the last, I think it was the slasher of Soho. They, how do you say that word? Todesrecher, der Todesrecher von Soho, yeah. The Todes that's, yeah, to like, get, uh, yeah. uh, that's literally means like death, the death avenger of Soho. Okay, not toad scraper or something like no, that. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, German is a, good, uh, is a good language for that harsh kind of imagery that you want from your exploitation movies, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because that wasn't, is that the one that was directed by Jess Franco? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah it was. he was a big exploitation so, Yeah, he director. was in there as well, yeah. I was reading this week, when I was looking at the Edgar Wallace in Germany uh, phenomena, the, the, the word crimi kept uh -huh. coming up, which is, is short for criminal, which is... A, so these, these are crime films, is that, yeah. is that right? And, and okay, there's so a particular type of crime film, is it? So in Germany in general, crimi, crimi just means any kind of crime fiction, be it literature, be it television, be it cinema. However, for certain fans of genre cinema, when they talk about Krimi, they talk about the Edgar Wallace movies. Those are what they view as like the German Krimi genre. How do you get an association, do you know? I, I would just think because the, the remaining German crime fiction, crime TV, etc., uh, doesn't hold as much interest to an international audience. And these hold a very specific interest, I think, mostly to fans of Italian horror, because they notice the connection with Giallo. The copy that I sent you, yeah. I can't quite remember. I think it was one of those ones where you get the subtitles separately and you, you overlay them yourself. Okay. I was intrigued by some of the translations sometimes, and I wanted to know, I wanted to be able to speak German. And to be the, uh -huh. how, how are the subtitles? How do they, well, how do they translate? Well, well, that's the thing. The subtitles are... I'm almost positive that the subtitles are from a dub of the movie because this did get exported to the US uh, in the 60s. So what the subtitles are doing are just like trying to find words that fit in with the lip movements, not so much accurate translations of what's going on. And that uh, I noticed that when there was a uh, line where they said, we'll meet at 11, and in the subtitles it said we'll meet at 12.30. Right, oh that's so So, so it's, not, it's not a question of them being done by someone who doesn't speak German or doesn't have a great grasp of German. It's clearly done with a purpose. But it is quite sad because, not that this is a masterpiece of writing, but some of How the dare you? do get... We're in the Edgar Wallace pub. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I mean, if anything, this is, an, this is an insult to his son and yes. not even that yeah. really, yeah. if you think about it. Uh, but yeah, so, so there was a dialogue like um, when the uh, sort of Agatha Christie type novelist uh, played by ba Barbara Rütting, uh, who by the way I did check up on and she uh, later went on to a career in politics in the German Green Party and currently in the German Vegan Party, which I didn't know was a thing. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, she says this thing of like, I want to uh, uh, investigate and uh, Sir Philip goes, well, you know, do you have a gun? And she answers, no, I have imagination. Yeah. And in the, the English subtitles, it's just something like, be careful, oh, it's no problem, or something like that. They really destroy a lot of interesting stuff with those subtitles, sadly. So the version I watched with my non-German speaking brain was even worse than the version that you saw. Yeah, and, and I'm not a fan of the version I saw. Right. So. <laughs> oh dear. 
Yeah, does that? Uh, it's also interesting for a German speaker to listen to those voices because some of them are quite strong accents, like Bavarian accents and stuff. And then you know they're going, "I'm Sir Philip," and no, you're not. You know. Okay, this is. I want to ask you about this actually because we're quite used to seeing, you know, a, a film set in China. Uh -huh. uh, but everybody speaks English, so they'll, they'll have somebody from Bay. All the Beijing characters are speaking Cockney, and all the. All the people yeah. from, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, Are they doing that in this film? Have you got people from... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're not necessarily looking at it from a class point of view. They're, they're not doing a one-on-one. -on -one. But yeah, like, it's just German people, and some of them have accents from all over. And, uh, of course, it also, you know, it's not necessarily... If, if they were all speaking perfect, you know, uh, uh, the, the German equivalent of the Queen's English, I don't think objectively that wouldn't be any better but I think subjectively I would have noticed less that they're not British okay because there is a there's a, a character the kind of um, the whiner who lives under the stairs yeah 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 and his dialogue is translated into the subtitles so it seems like call lo Lammy not me governor all that kind of stuff yeah 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 that's, that, that's like added in the subtitles he doesn't like he doesn't necessarily speak like anyone from a specific area of Germany okay Right, that's interesting. That there are a lot of things in this movie that don't add up to me. For instance, like uh, the, the the character played by uh, Helga Sommerfeld, the the sort the of club photographer. Yeah, the the club photographer. Corinne, yeah. Okay, so this is a strip club. Yeah. And she's the photographer. She's just constantly taking pictures of middle-aged men with strippers. Yeah. I think that most of them would not appreciate that. Isn't she doing that in order to? Have some leverage over them at later dates, don't? Because the manage the club management are bent. Yeah. Um, and aren't they? Isn't it all? So they've got pictures of these people to blackmail them at later date. Well, it, it might be, but none of the old men ever react with a "Hey," except for Patton. Actually, no one ever says "Hey, I don't want my picture taken." They're always like, "Oh, hey, yeah." Yeah. It's a Kodak moment, which seems very weird. Yeah. It's also the moment <laughs> where, like, she. Uh, a message is brought to, to Inspector Patton and he immediately gets up and leaves and then it cuts to uh, the, the doctor and the proprietor of the nightclub going, he's, he's left very suddenly, he must be on to something. And it's like, yes, Patton, maybe wait five minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and just to finish this off, also the whole thing of the Phantom because Patton and uh, the head of Scotland Yard keep having this discussion where Patton is like, it was a Phantom. And Sir Philip says, the phantom doesn't exist. But it doesn't feel like Patton is saying that it's some sort of supernatural ghost. He's just saying there's this killer whom we call the phantom. The tabloids are called the phantom, yeah. basically. Uh, who keeps killing people. And that seems pretty obvious that that is the case. So it feels like a completely artificial uh, problem. Damn you, sir. Do not call him the phantom. Yeah. <laughs> you made it pretty clear that you're not a fan of the film. But also, you do seem to have quite a lot of opinions about it. You obviously thought about it. Is that purely because you come in on this on this podcast that you've taken the time to think about it? Because uh, it seems like you've managed to find enough of interest in the film to perhaps recommend that the people see it if they've got a spare 90 yeah. minutes. Or would I, they... I, I mean, kind of what it has motivated me to do is to watch more of these films. Because like the thing is, on IMDb, we were discussing this off mic before, uh, quite a lot of people give it quite a good review and say like it's one of the better movies from this series, yeah. uh, w w which is scary. <laughs> but I do think that like 
I, I am fascinated by the phenomenon as a whole, uh, you know, this whole genre of movies based around a writer that they're not often not actually based around, having this ultra-artificial view of Britain and sort of like this mishmash of, as I said, Victorian, Edwardian stuff and like 60s go-go stuff. Uh, so, and, and yeah, I think that it's not a good movie, but it's certainly, if you're interested in history or interested in genre cinema and how it's evolved, it's certainly like a fascinating museum piece, I would say. My thanks to Daniel Reiferscheid for giving up hours of his life to watch, research and talk about Das Vantum von Soho. Daniel is one of the hosts of the Talking Pictures TV podcast, the podcast of this podcast's favourite TV station. Follow them on Twitter at TPTV Podcast. Daniel also has other podcast projects, details of which are in the show notes. And thanks again to Tony Shrimplin from the Museum of Soho. I'd really encourage you to check out the museum's website at mosoho.org.uk and follow them on Twitter on at the Museum of Soho. As I mentioned earlier, I've posted a list of creamy films on the show notes for this episode. This is episode 12, as well as a playlist of criminal film and music. You'll also find details about all previous guests and links to old episodes in the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. During lockdown, Soho Bites is on the radio every week. On Friday mornings on Soho Radio, Claire Lynch, who presents the Soho Hour from 9 until 10 every weekday, will be playing one of the features from a past episode of Soho Bites. Tune into that if you can at SohoRadioLondon.com and follow Claire for updates on Twitter at Claire Lynch Red and follow the station at Soho Radio. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Soho Bites on your favourite podcast provider. There's a handy subscribe button at SohoBitesPodcast.com and if you have time to leave a nice review, that would be very much appreciated. I'm always keen to hear suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about and you can tweet the show with your ideas on at BitesSoho or email us on SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and it's based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Yong. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. That's it for now. Until next time, stay at home, and if you can't stay at home, stay safe. And bye for now. Bye.